that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Thank you to you at home for joining me this hour. So yesterday was Supreme Court Day, a day when you at home may have familiarized yourself with the Civil War origins of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, as justices on the high court heard arguments for removing Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot for stoking an insurrection, a violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And by all accounts, the justices' posture during those arguments suggests the court is looking for ways to punt on that central question, did Donald Trump incite an insurrection and instead hand the issue maybe to Congress, basically to let some other group of people deal with a possible insurrectionist president being elected another day, which would seem to be a win for Donald Trump. It seemed to be a win because even as Mr. Trump was taking his victory lap, a different judge in a different courtroom released this one-page order. It is hereby ordered, adjudged, and decreed that after a jury trial before the Honorable Louis A. Kaplan, plaintiff E. Jean Carroll has judgment for damages against the defendant Donald J. Trump for an aggregate sum of $83,300,000. That order is essentially a bill. Donald Trump must pay the $83.3 million he owes to E. Jean Carroll immediately. It does not matter that Donald Trump is appealing this case. It does not matter that Donald Trump is running for president. It does not matter that Donald Trump believes he had a good day at the Supreme Court yesterday. The law is binding, and Donald Trump must either fork over the money or pony up some collateral to someone who will fork over the money for him. Now, this order from Judge Kaplan is an important reminder that while Trump may have breathed a sigh of relief at the Supreme Court yesterday, there is still a lot of legal peril on the horizon for him, the very near horizon, like next week. Recall that at the beginning of this week, a D.C. appeals court thoroughly and unanimously rejected Trump's claim that he has presidential immunity and he cannot be prosecuted and cannot be prosecuted for trying to overturn the 2020 election. Now, that federal election interference case against Trump has effectively been put on ice while this presidential immunity issue works its way through the courts. But Trump has until Monday to tell the Supreme Court whether he plans to appeal. And whether or not the court decides to keep this case frozen after Monday to essentially make time for Trump's appeal could tell us a whole lot about whether this court is sympathetic to Mr. Trump or whether this court is quite the opposite. Many legal experts here believe that the win the court is about to hand Donald Trump in the 14th Amendment case may be offset by a potential rejection in his bid for immunity in the election interference case. As Professor Richard Hassan writes for Slate, a grand bargain that appears to make practical sense as a compromise is beginning to come into view. The Supreme Court unanimously holds that Colorado does not have the power to remove Donald Trump from its ballot. But in a separate case, it rejects his immunity argument and makes Trump go on trial this spring or summer on federal election subversion charges. 
So it's a big moment in which we may know whether the Supreme Court is inclined to let the federal criminal trial go forward before the November election. But that's not it. And it's not the only case where Donald Trump is relying on so-called presidential immunity to shield him from accountability. There is also the civil lawsuit brought by Capitol Police officers who were trying to hold Trump civilly liable for the violence they faced on January 6th. Trump's lawyers have until Thursday to ask the Supreme Court to weigh in on that case as well. And Thursday is also the day that Trump's lawyers are due in a Manhattan courtroom for a pretrial hearing in Trump's criminal case involving hush money paid to an adult film actress, Stormy Daniels. That hearing could be where we learn when that case will go to trial. And then there is Trump's New York civil fraud case, the one where he could be forced to pay hundreds of millions of dollars and liquidate the Trump organization in New York. We are still awaiting Judge Judge Arthur and Goran's verdict in that case, which could come any day now, very possibly next week. Now, arguments in that case finished about a month ago, but that's not stopped Trump's lawyers from getting into all kinds of fights with the judge in this case as he weighs his ruling. At present, Judge Goran is concerned that one of the top financial executives in the Trump organization committed perjury, or at least that's the reporting. So Judge Ngoron wrote to Trump's lawyers asking them for any information about that executive and his potential perjury. It seems germane to a case involving Trump's financial dealings. And Trump's lawyers sent Judge Ngoron a scathing response, a response calling the judge's request for information unprecedented, inappropriate and troubling. Well, yesterday, Judge Ngoron fired back. When I sent my straightforward, narrow request for information, I was not seeking to initiate a wide-ranging debate with counsel. However, your misleading response grossly mischaracterizes the letter that I wrote, and I feel compelled to respond. You and your co-counsel have been questioning my impartiality since the early days of this case, presumably because I sometimes rule against your clients. That whole approach is getting old. It really seems like Trump's lawyers are going maybe out of their way to anger this judge who is about to decide whether or not to dissolve Trump's entire business in the state and make him cough up as much as maybe $370 million. And these lawyers are doing it at a time when several of Trump's other cases, civil and criminal, might be about to start moving forward. It's all a very interesting strategy. But hey, at least Trump will probably still get to run for president in the state of Colorado. Joining me now is George Conway, a conservative lawyer and contributor to The Atlantic. Also with me is Rick Hassan, UCLA professor, director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project and author of the upcoming book, A Real Right to Vote. Um, Professor Hassan, let me just start with you. I know both of you all have very important, essential reads uh, in the, in, today and in, in the last week. I'd love, Professor, if you could talk a little bit more about the grand bargain you see developing and um, what it portends for this potential presidential immunity appeal from Donald Trump. Well, it's kind of a fortuity for Jack Smith, the special counsel, that the immunity uh, case is arriving at the Supreme Court right as the court is deciding what to do in the disqualification case. You may remember that Jack Smith went months ago to the Supreme Court, tried to leapfrog the Court of Appeals, get the court to rule on this. The, the whole ballgame is timing. Uh, now it seems like 
with a majority of justices, both liberal and conservative, seeming to side with Trump in the disqualification case, you could see that there's there could be a lot of pressure on the other side to say, let's let this case go to trial, the, the case on election subversion in Washington, D.C. So Trump wins one, he gets to stay on the ballot, but he loses a big one. He goes on trial this spring or summer uh, for election subversion in Washington, D.C., thereby letting the voters decide whether or not Trump is really disqualified from serving for office. Can I just follow on that, Professor, just because when we hear the term grand bargain, we usually think of congressional negotiations or legislative negotiations. Is it now sort of just accepted that the Supreme Court is so clearly letting politics or at least political perceptions um, in, intervene or at least inform the decisions they're making in big uh, pieces of litigation? Well, I don't think they're actually going to be bargaining and saying, I'll vote this way if you vote that way. But I think that there's a kind of tacit agreements in these kinds of things. And how much pushback, say, the liberal justices are going to give in the disqualification case? Remember, you've got six Republican appointed justices. You've got three Democratic appointed justices. It's not going to be a good look for the Supreme Court if it's a six to three decision. I don't think that's likely to be. But if uh, Justices Kagan and Jackson, uh, at least, are willing to go along here, then, you know, it takes... Uh, five votes to put a stay in place in that immunity case it takes only four to have a hearing. The, the justices have got to know that all the eyes are on them. And it's going to look a lot less lopsided if the court gives with one hand and takes from the other, even if they're, they're not engaged in the kind of horse trading that you might see on the floor of the House of Representatives. Right. Not quite. Well, there's not as many horses to be traded, shall we say. Uh, George, I know you are a fan of the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling on presidential immunity. I believe it's a 57-page opinion. I'll read what you wrote in The Atlantic. The strength of the appeals court opinion makes it far more likely that the Supreme Court will do nothing. Any court, including the Supreme Court, would have a tough time writing a better opinion than the one the D.C. Circuit published today. This was when it came out earlier this week. The best course of action would be for the Supreme Court to deny a stay and to deny review altogether in a matter of days. Um, George, how confident are you in this? And can you talk a little bit about what you're going to be looking for after Trump presumably uh, makes his appeal for a stay on Monday? Well, I, I'm not confident enough to place a monetary bet on it. But I do think there is a substantial likelihood that the Supreme Court will deny cert. And I and I agree mostly with the bottom line of Professor of Professor Hazen. I but I don't I wouldn't call it a grand bargain and I wouldn't even call it an implicit trade off. I think that what, what what's going on here and I think it was seriously reflected in the argument just the other day is they don't want to be on this election-bound highway. They don't want to have anything to do with affecting the outcome of the 2024 race or being appe appearing to. And they want to get out of this business and they want to get out of the controversy. They have a lot of things on their plates. And they, 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 they are all concerned, not, not just Chief Justice Roberts, but the people on, on both sides of both wings of the court um, are concerned about the institutional uh, standing of the court. And I think that here, uh, the same motivations that are causing them in the 14th Amendment case that was argued the other day uh, to 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 kind of avoid the issue and avoid controversy would lead them 
to deny certiorari and to take, not refuse to hear the case uh, that the, the decision that the D.C. Circuit uh, has, has put forth in the immunity uh, litigation. And I think that is also, as I said, uh, that 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 impetus would be compounded by the fact that the opinion is so good. They don't really have anything to add here. So why risk the institution, any institutional criticism? Why waste the time and effort of the court to get into this when it's already been solved by the D.C. Circuit, particularly when uh, Donald Trump can get another crack at the Supreme Court after he is, as I believe he will be, convicted and sentenced? Um, Professor, can can I get you to respond to I guess George's suggestion is maybe maybe the terminology might be exit strategy rather than grand bargain, that these are two convenient off ramps, punt it to Congress on the 14th Amendment and leave it with the D.C. Circuit Court. And in both ways, the Supreme Court doesn't have to get into the muck of what did we call George called the election highway. A a lot of mixed metaphors. there. The the Donald Trump muck. Yeah, the Donald Trump muck. Um, if, If let's assume that we're all sort of in agreement generally about what the court might do. I mean. What do you look for next week in terms of the the court's behavior after the Monday deadline passes? So the court's got, you know, a few options. One thing it can do is deny the stay, uh, not rule on any. There's no cert petition yet, which will let the case go to trial. Uh, It could treat the stay as a kind of cert petition itself. I think this may be fairly likely. And they set another super fast track like they did in the 14th Amendment case. And we get an opinion from the Supreme Court so it can be final on the question of presidential immunity uh, in relation to criminal liability. And we get a ruling by sometime in March or April and then, you know, summer trial. Uh, Or the court could take the case and slow walk it. I think that last one is really outcome determinative. It's going to deprive the American people of the chance to know whether Trump is guilty of the crime of election subversion of all of the criminal cases, of all of the civil cases, this is the one that is most directly related to what his strategy was nationally. And I think the American people need to see what the evidence is and need to let a jury consider it. And so if the court doesn't want to interfere, it's much as much about timing as it is about what the court says in terms of, you know, what what its opinion would say about immunity, which I, I agree with George, is very likely to agree on the merits with what the Court of Appeal has said. Yeah. George, what do you think about that in terms of the, the sort of middle road suggestion that the professor's talking about where the, the you know, that the Supreme Court effectively, effectively wants to put its stamp on the presidential immunity question and they hand down their decision or their opinion in March or April? I mean, there are some folks that say any any delay in this is a gift to Trump, even if the court ultimately basically says the same thing as the D.C. Circuit of Court of Appeal. The fact that they will have in that process frozen the trial for another month, two months, three months is a win for Donald Trump. Yeah, I I mean, I think that Donald Trump and his legal team are scratching and clawing for every day they can get here, you know, which is a a surprising thing, because normally when if you're being charged with a crime, you want to prove your innocence if you are, in fact, innocent. But let's leave that aside. I think that, you know, if they if they issue a decision in 
April, May, or June, I think there's still a good chance that you could get a trial uh, before the election and maybe even before the Republican National Convention, because I think a trial would be, uh, could be done, uh, held in eight to 10 weeks after, after a decision from the Supreme Court. But I think that to go back to the, the, the scenarios that the professor pointed out, the, my favorite scenario is, I think, a, maybe he mentioned it, but I think that's a variant of his. My favorite scenario, the one I'm praying for, is that Monday, uh, Donald Trump files his application to stay the district court proceedings, as the D.C. Circuit is essentially requiring him to do. And then an hour later, the Justice Department, Jack Smith, files his opposition to the stay the stay application, in which case the stay application will be fully submitted to the Supreme Court. And within a matter of days, the court could deny the stay, stay application and they could do something else. They could do what uh, Rick mentioned, they, that they could treat the stay application as a petition for a writ of certiorari and say, not only is the stay application denied, the cert petition is denied. And that would send the case immediately back to the district court. And we could have a trial in May. All right. Well, it's going to be a busy week, maybe. Well, certainly. A, a, listen, if you're a Trump lawyer, it's a busy week. If you're the American public, there's a lot to be on the lookout for. George Conway, Professor Rick Hassan, thank you so much for your time this evening. Really appreciate you guys. Thank you. We have lots more ahead tonight, including the machinations inside the Department of Justice around that highly charged report on President Biden, his classified documents and his age. But first, special counsel Jack Smith is calling out Trump's lawyers bigly. More on the mess down at Mar-a-Lago right after the break. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The, I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. Kings Island is now open weekends. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted where I felt adventure's pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. You might have missed it among all the 14th Amendment talk this week, but things down in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case have been very busy. One of the many filings this week was a scathing response from special counsel Jack Smith to a request made by Trump's lawyers for more time for pretrial discovery. Now, if the judge in this case grants Trump's request, it would delay the scheduled May 20th trial even longer than it already seems to be delayed. As special counsel Smith wrote, Trump's objective is plain, to delay the trial as long as possible. And the tactics they deploy are relentless and misleading. They will stop at nothing to stall the adjudication of the charges against them by a fair and impartial jury of citizens. 
Smith continues, their motive is additionally revealed by the nature of one of the motions that the defendant now suggests that they intend to file, a motion to dismiss based on purported presidential immunity, despite the fact that the criminal conduct charged in the superseding indictment took place entirely after defendant Trump left office. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama and professor at the University of Alabama School of Law. Joyce, thank you for being here. I I feel like for a long time, uh, Jack Smith has been quite restrained, at least um, in, in the writing of a lot of these filings. This one, however, really seems to um, reveal a man frustrated. Who do you think is the audience for this particular file? Is it is it Judge Cannon, or is it maybe the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals? You know, Judge Cannon is the audience for, I think, Jack Smith's increasing outrage this week. It's in this motion. It's in a squabble over potentially releasing the names of witnesses. Federal prosecutors are very measured, and there's always someone to read your motion before you file it. That was my job for a long time as the appellate chief in my office. And something that I did was I made sure that not even a hint of discourtesy crept into our pleadings when we filed them in front of a federal judge. So you know that for this strident of a tone to be used in a variety of motions, it's a deliberate strategical decision. They are uh, putting her on notice, in essence, that she's crossed the line and that they won't tolerate the commission of clear air. I mean, it's not the only filing that the special counsel's office has made this week. He also is suggesting, or not suggesting, saying plainly that he thinks Judge Cannon made a, quote, clear error in her order to unseal, um, I believe it's redacted discovery documents. Um, the special counsel's office has said, you know, effectively releasing these documents would expose witnesses and it would trigger intimidations and threats against, again, not, not just witnesses, but even Judge Cannon herself. In the course of that, we learn that there is an ongoing separate federal investigation into witness intimidate or threat threats made against a prospective government witness. So it seems like there's real currency to the argument Jack Smith is making here in his plea to Judge Cannon. And yet, Joyce, do you think this is going to fall on deaf ears? So it's an interesting question, Alex. I mean, we're super nerdy in the weeds here in terms of talking about these sorts of pleadings, about discovery. This is the sort of stuff that doesn't usually happen in a case because most judges are very concerned about the safety of witnesses. And at the first whiff of potential threat to a witness, most judges will take every step necessary to protect those folks. That's not what's happening here. And so Jack Smith has, as you say, uh, accused Judge Cannon of committing clear error. That's the standard he has to allege in this sort of a technical motion for her to reconsider one of her earlier rulings. And he's right. She has committed clear error, requiring him to, to prove stuff that he doesn't have to prove. But the most important thing to know about this is that he is clearly outraged that she would expose witnesses and that she would expose information about an ongoing federal investigation to Donald Trump. She has now ordered him to turn that over. You know, I had not expected things to come to a head in this case until she ruled on the Classified Information Procedures Act hearing she's holding next week. But Jack Smith may be on track to go to the 11th Circuit earlier than that. I, I say maybe cautiously, but it's possible that they would file 
a motion called a writ of mandamus asking the 11th Circuit to order her to protect these witnesses' identities from disclosure rather than run the risk that they be exposed to harm. Yeah. Can can we just talk about that? Because that is the breaking kind of news this hour, if you will, that Judge Cannon is effectively ignoring the special counsel's pleas, the concerns that he's voiced about uh, witnesses under threat or intimidation and is saying the court finds an insufficient basis provided to deviate from the sort of traditional adversarial process in this instance, which is to say these documents need to be shared with Trump's counsel. Sorry, Jack Smith. I mean, does that seem unusual to you? I don't think unusual even begins to capture it. It's really extraordinary. Prosecutors have to be able to protect witnesses, not just in this case, but in every case, because we ask people to come forward to tell the truth so we can hold criminals accountable. And sometimes criminals aren't super nice people. In this case, we've got a defendant who, whether through his fault or through the um, the implications his followers take from his comments, witnesses, people who have spoken out against him have been exposed to risk. And in some cases, Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul, comes to mind, exposed to harm because his wife had become one of Trump's political targets. So look, if you're a federal judge, what you're doing here is you're listening to prosecutors, you're carefully evaluating the evidence and the law. And when they come to you saying this is so serious that we have an ongoing investigation that we need to protect, you don't then turn that over to Donald Trump, the defendant. Well, it seems like there is a case to be made, whether now or in the future, about whether Judge Cannon is the right judge for this case. Um, But that all remains TBD. Joyce Vance, thank you, my friend, as always, for sharing this Friday night with me. Thanks, Alex. Coming up, Ben Rhodes joins me to discuss Israel's new evacuation order in southern Gaza, where over a million displaced civilians have reached the literal end of the road. That is next. This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference. That panicked crowd was internally displaced Palestinians in Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah, reacting to a strike just feet from the tent city they now call home. This is a satellite image of Rafah at the start of the war back in October. And this is the same area last month. All of the dots you see on screen are tents and temporary shelters. 
Before the war, Rafah was home to 280,000 people. It is now home to more than 1.5 million. More than 600,000 of those people are children living in cramped conditions without enough food or water or medicine in what the U.N. has called a pressure cooker of despair. In October, Israel ordered more than a million Gazans to evacuate the northern half of the Palestinian territory. In December, Israel divided Gaza into more than 2,000 zones and dropped leaflets ordering civilians from one zone to another. Ultimately, Israeli forces pushed the nearly entire civilian population, population of Gaza to its southernmost border. And today, life for Palestinians in and around Rafah has become even more dire. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the Israeli military to come up with a plan to evacuate all of the civilians from Rafah with the intention of sending ground troops in after those civilians are gone. But this is already literally the end of the road in Gaza, and this population is already hanging on by a thread. So where exactly does Israel expect these one and a half million people to go? Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama and co-host of Pod Save the World. Ben, thanks for being here uh, this evening. This um, this is a really there have been so many tough developments in this entire horrible uh, war that began in October, principally uh, in terms of Israeli forces going into Gaza. I wonder if you have a thought about the degree to which the Israeli government has planned or intends to plan on a strategy to deal with 1.4 million displaced Palestinians. No, there's clearly no plan whatsoever, Alex. And keep in mind, as you said, these people were pushed down into Rafah, told to go down there. Some of these people have evacuated three or four times from other places. Their homes are destroyed. Uh, They have very little, if any, access to food and water. Uh, Aid trucks uh, are having a lot of trouble getting in. Israel is pushing for a cutoff of all assistance to UNRWA, the UN agency that provides assistance into Gaza. Uh, And now they're telling people that are in these dire circumstances to move, but they're not clear at all about where they're supposed to go or how that's supposed to be safe. Uh, And meanwhile, there are airstrikes taking place around this. Um, And the big question here is, does Israel have the intention of pushing these people, trying to push these people out of Gaza and into Egypt? Uh, the Palestinians don't want to leave because they think that if they leave their homeland, they'll never be allowed back. And they have pretty good reason to think that. There are people in the Israeli government that have literally had ceremonies where they talk about wanting to build settlements uh, in Gaza. Um, the Egyptians also don't want them to come into Egypt for their own purposes, as well as uh, not wanting to see them displaced as well. So there's literally nowhere for these people to go. And that includes 600,000 children. And it's hard to see how, if this ground operation goes forward, it's not just another absolute humanitarian catastrophe compounding what's already taken place. What is the role of Egypt here in, in, in staving off this mass displacement? Uh, I mean, Egypt is, has made very clear it does not want Palestinian refugees across its border. But at a point, you know, just logically, there's nowhere else for them to go but to run up to that very border. So, I mean, how can Egypt leverage its literal position in all of this to ameliorate the situation? Well, what's complicated, right, is that Rafah border crossing, people have heard about this. This is the only place really where uh, aid can get in from the south and where some people have been permitted to leave uh, going south in a very controlled way. And because that border has basically been enforced as a part of the Israel blockade of Gaza for well over a decade, you know, it is fortified. 
And Egypt has the support of the Arab world in preventing a flood of Palestinian refugees coming in, in part because, again, the Arab world supports the Palestinian position that they don't want to be displaced. Uh, Palestinians, even Palestinians who suffered so gravely, don't want to leave Gaza, like I said, because they think then they'll never get back. Because that's basically been the past in wars where Palestinians have been displaced from their lands uh, in the past. They've not been permitted to return. Um, and so you know, we'll see how dire the circumstance gets. And we'll see if the intent is to push Palestinian South across that border or whether uh, the intention is to kind of move them around somewhere else in the Gaza Strip. I should also say Israel has diplomatic relations with Egypt uh, that would be you know, endangered, compromised at least, uh, if the Israeli policy was to push them into Egypt. So that's another thing. And the U.S. government, by the way, the Biden administration has been more outspoken on this issue and raising concerns about Rafah than they have on even past Israeli military operations. So there's a lot uh, of moving parts here. Yeah, I want to talk about the U.S. position a little bit. I mean, of course, this began with the heinous Hamas attack on October 7th, right? And for a long time, the rhetoric rhetoric focused on the hostages, the retrieval of the hostages, and rooting out Hamas. But at this point, Prime Minister Netanyahu is making clear that, yes, of course, the plan is to destroy Hamas, but that afterwards, Israel must retain security control over Gaza for an indefinite period. And the far right in in Israel, as you point out, is calling for the resettlement of Jewish people in Gaza and for Palestinians to emigrate out of Gaza. President Biden called this, I think the phrase was over the top yesterday. And I know that's an escalation in terms of criticism, but then like over the top is when you wear sequins and feathers at the same time. I just I'm a little bit stunned that given the explicit nature of what Netanyahu is aiming to do here, that the administration is is still, I mean, rather timid in its its language, given the dire situation that people are facing there. Yeah, I mean, let's just be clear here, Alex. Uh, Hamas initiated this with the horrific attack on October 7th. Since then, we've had almost 30,000 Palestinians killed. We've had uh, well over 10,000 Palestinian children killed. Those are not people in Hamas. Hamas cannot be defeated and destroyed militarily. They're not going to come out and surrender and say that there's no such thing as Hamas anymore. Their leadership is out of Gaza. Um, As that population moves around, I'm sure that there's some Hamas elements embedded in that population. And moreover, an entire generation, if not generations, of Palestinians are being radicalized by the scale of the destruction that is raining down on them. And you cannot rescue hostages with military force. It doesn't work. They haven't been able to do it. The hostages have only gotten out in diplomacy. And this Israeli government has made clear time and again publicly that it will not support or even allow a Palestinian state and that it intends to administer Gaza. All of these things are against the policy of the United States. And just saying it's over the top is not only not kind of in line with the scale of the devastation we're seeing, it it doesn't line up to the fact that there's totally discordant positions here. The U.S. position is there should be a Palestinian state and the Israeli government's position is there should never be one. The U.S. position is we're extremely concerned about this operation in Gaza. And then the next day, Prime Minister Netanyahu goes out and says, everybody has to evacuate. We're going to do this uh, operation in Rafah. At some point, there needs to be some consequence, some policy separation, some conditioning of assistance, some willingness to be openly critical of Israel, of this Israeli government internationally. If there's not, then it doesn't matter if you call it over the top. They're just going to keep doing what they're doing. And, and, and at some point, this the strategy of kind of essentially embracing Israel substantively 
And when I say Israel, I mean Prime Minister Netanyahu, really. He's the one calling the shots here. Um, if you're not willing to question that approach, there's no reason to be, believe that Bibi Netanyahu is going to change his approach because he's far more interested in what the far right members of his coalition to keep him in power say than he is in what President Biden has said so far. Not to mention just Bibi Netanyahu's political unpopularity in Israel and his disinterest in Joe Biden being reelected in November. There are many signs that point to a different position for this White House. Ben Rhodes, my friend, it's always good to see you. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have much more ahead this evening, including what former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton told me earlier this week about President Biden's age and how he should handle questions about it. That's next. At age 81, Joe Biden is the oldest sitting president in American history. And Biden has addressed this fact in two different ways. He has adopted a sort of youthful anti-hero alter ego, Dark Brandon. That started as a meme on the far right, Biden with those red laser eyes. But the president has come to embrace it. We have since seen Biden drinking coffee from a Dark Brandon mug. His campaign sells Dark Brandon stickers and T-shirts and baseball caps and tumblers. And if you happen to click on a broken link on the Biden campaign website, you won't see that usual 404 error. You will see Dark Brandon. The other way President Biden has addressed his age is by really playing up his seniority. In November, Biden posted to Instagram a photo of his birthday cake in flames. He wrote, thanks for the birthday well wishes today, everyone. Turns out on your 146th birthday, you run out of space for candles. Last April, he shared a few zingers at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. After all, I believe in the First Amendment, not just because my good friend Jimmy Madison wrote it, <laughs> call me old. I call it being seasoned. You say I'm ancient. I say I'm wise. You say I'm over the hill. Don Lemon would say that's a man of his prime. Now, the latest national NBC News poll shows that 76 percent of voters are concerned about President Biden's age. On Wednesday, I asked former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton about this fact and how Biden should handle it. The thing, the X factor in all of this, the thing that we keep seeing in poll after poll after poll is concern about Biden's age. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Mm -hmm. What should he do on this? Does he is it is a matter of sort of like uh, underscoring his boundless energy mm -hmm. or or should he embrace his, you know, eight decades on Earth and the and the great wisdom he's gained through all of this? I, I, I mean, do you all have the above? All yeah. the above. I mean, I you know, I talk to people in the White House all the time yeah. and. You know, they know it's an issue. But as I like to say, look, it's a legitimate issue. It's a legitimate issue for Trump, who's only three years younger. Right. So it's an issue. Once you say that, then you have to also talk about what's at stake in the election. And I'm for Joe Biden for reelection on the merits, because I think he's done a really good job as president. So I think he should continue to get out and campaign. He's been campaigning pretty vigorously across the country. You know, and he actually does events where he's interacting with people, yeah. unlike Trump, who stands on a stage and, you know, 
goes on and on for, you know, 90 minutes. Uh, you know, Biden's taking questions. He's talking to people in small Not from groups. the media. Well, but that's okay. And, you know, it's okay. I'm sorry, Alex. It's okay. We will respectfully disagree. Neither is Trump. I mean, you know, neither one of them are going. They they at this point in the campaign are trying to, you know, communicate with as many people yeah. as possible. I think Biden also should lean in to the fact that he's experienced. And that experience is not just in the political arena. It's like the stuff of, you know, human experience. Yeah, character. Character. Wisdom. I think he should be willing to really hold that out. Say, you know, how do you pull together a coalition to stand against Russian aggression? Well, you don't do it by photo ops. You do it because you have long experience in dealing with leaders and you know what's at stake. And I think he should kid more about it. He sometimes makes a joke when, you know, we haven't done something like this since, you know, James Madison and I talked to him about it. I mean, I think things like that, which are sort of I just funny. turned 113 years old. Yeah, exactly. Coming up, I'll talk to Justice Department reporter Devlin Barrett at The Washington Post about what happened inside the Department of Justice that led to a report characterizing the president as elderly and forgetful. That is next. Special counsel Robert Hur released a report yesterday declining to pursue charges against President Biden for retaining classified documents. But the report also questioned the president's mental acuity. In his summary, Hur concluded that his office had considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Joining me now is Devlin Barrett, the Justice Department reporter and co-author of the Trump Trials newsletter for The Washington Post. He is also the author of October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. Devlin, you are the perfect person to talk to in this moment. I, I think a lot of folks are wondering how did where what was Merrick Garland's role in approving this report that the White House, the vice president calls politically motivated in its language about President Biden's cognitive decline or alleged cognitive decline. The White House preemptively offered a rebuttal, calling it highly prejudicial language, um, the kind of criticism of an uncharged party that violates longstanding department practice and protocol. I mean, can you flesh out exactly where Merrick Garland, President Biden's appointee here, fits into all of this? So this the part of the challenge here is there are two competing impulses within the Justice Department. One is to let any special counsel include Okay, I think we've lost Devlin Barrett there. So we are going to go back and play sound of Vice President Biden. Uh, sorry, Vice President Harris. Do we still have it? We have Devlin Barrett. We're going back to Devlin Barrett. Devlin, are you with us? I am. Is this any better? Yes, this is great. You have, we have a live sorry. shot in that are frozen screen. Coming in from a snowstorm. My apologies. <laughs> we appreciate the bravery. So you were saying the, the sort of the balancing the two, the sort of various competing interests inside the Department of Justice, and that's something the attorney general must do. Please continue. Right. So the special counsel has a lot of independence. At the same time, the Justice Department has a longstanding tradition that when you decide to not charge individuals, you don't sort of dirty them up on the way out. And that's what you saw, which was so problematic about the way they closed, for example, the Hillary Clinton email investigation. They had... Jim Comey, yeah. the FBI director at the time, announced he wasn't going to pursue charges, but then proceeded to say a lot of negative things about her. Here, what you have is a situation where the special counsel, Robert Hur, in explaining his decision, 
in, in essentially a declination memo, what the Justice Department would call a declination memo, goes through. I think the snowstorm is getting the better of us. Uh, so I'm going to go a little bit early to my friend Jonathan Capehart, who is in for Lawrence O'Donnell. Actually, no, we're not going to do that. We're rolling with all the punches tonight. We're going to listen to what Vice President Kamala Harris had to say about President Biden and the characterization of President Biden in that report from special counsel Robert Hur. Let's take a listen. The way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated, gratuitous. And so I will say that when it comes to the role and responsibility of a prosecutor in a situation like that, we should expect that there would be a higher level of integrity than what we saw. That was Vice President Harris offering a forceful defense of the the president she serves, President Joe Biden. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference.